Folks, a quick message from our sponsors, Know Before. So what's a con game? It's a fraud that works by getting the victim to misplace their confidence in the con artist. In the world of cybersecurity, we call confidence tricks social engineering. And as our sponsors, Know Before, will tell you, human error is how most organizations are compromised. What are some of the ways organizations are victimized by social engineering? We'll find out here in just a minute. Now, our sponsors' questions about forms of social engineering come in this form. Know Before will tell you that there's human contact, there can be con games. It's important to build the kind of security culture in which your employees are enabled to make smart security decisions. To do that, they need a new school security awareness training. See how security culture stacks up against Know Before's free phishing test. Get it now at knowbefore.com forward slash phishing test. That's knowbefore.com forward slash fishing test. Now, no before wants to thank you for listening to the show and I want to thank them for sponsoring it. They are the provider of the world's largest security awareness and simulated fishing platform. Be sure to take advantage of their free fishing test, which you can find at knowbefore.com forward slash fishing test. Think no before for your security training. Hey everyone, James Azar here with your CISO Talk podcast. Welcome to today's episode. A very special guest joining me uh, on the road, um, Nick Gilbert, the CISO for Cherokee Nation Businesses. Welcome to the CISO Talk podcast, Nick. Great to be here. Thank you. It's it's awesome to finally connect. I know you and I have been trying to do this now for about five months. Um. <laughs> yeah, COVID. Right, COVID. I, I blame everything on COVID, and it's great because it's the perfect excuse for everything. Even people who get sick, they go, "I've had COVID. What? I had a sore throat. That's one of the COVID symptoms." Yeah, it's 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 been uh, really interesting. I mean, it's it's entirely unprecedented. So, um, you know, it's it's one thing to be in the wild west of uh, of IT, but now we we're in the wild west of the the pandemic uh, realm as well. So it's, it's, it's been a real interesting ride. I see we have another guest who just showed up as well. Um, my, dog. Uh, my, my dog Kenzo decided he was going to come in here and, and listen to our podcast. So uh, uh, he gets to be the first one, I guess, to, to hear it. <laughs> He's getting the uh, premiere of it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so Nick, kind of getting into a little bit of, of, of our CISO talk, Tell me a little bit of how you got started in cyber. What was your background, your 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 education? How did you end up being a CISO? Right. Yeah. It's it's a it's a long story, and and I think it'd probably make a pretty good uh, uh, adventure novel. But I'll, I'll keep it pretty simple. Uh, you know, I, I actually started. In, uh, well, I wanted to start in IT a long, long time before I did. Um, when I uh, when I was seventeen, I wanted to get into IT, but. Uh, I went up uh, to the uh, Army uh, MEP station to join the Army, and I and had all this intention of doing something with IT within the Army. And when I got up there, they told me, well, you're partially colorblind. You can't do anything in IT. So, you know, the next thing I know, I'm, I've been recruited to ride around on motorcycles and blow up bridges. <laughs> well, that, that didn't go over really well with my parents. Um, <laughs> You know, you send a 17-year-old up to the recruiting station. What are you going to expect, right? But hey, uh, I, I enlisted as 13 Bravo. 
Oh, okay. Well, the, you get it then. <laughs> I get it. <laughs> write so up I, on anything uh, and blow shit up. That's the name of the game. Right? Yeah. Yeah. But uh, I, I got home and I told my parents and they're like, oh, no, you're not. You need to go back up there and pick a job that kind of translates into something in the civilian world when you get out. So long story short, I got into be I was a military police officer. And that's that's kind of where the whole, I won't say IT, but the kind of the security background started. And, uh, you know, it, my entrance into the IT realm was completely by accident. Um, I, uh, I was going to college. I had this old uh, 380, well, it wasn't old back then, but it was a 386 SX-16. And <laughs> so it was, you know, it was, it was a real high-speed, low-drag computer. It had broken down, and, and I had done a bunch of work to it. The next thing I know, I'm, I'm at this computer shop trying to get it fixed, and the guy offers me a job. Says, "Hey, can can you help me build computers part time when you you know while you go to school?" And uh, he just he just felt I had the aptitude for it, and that's kind of where it all started. And then uh, after college, I got a great offer from the from the U.S. government because of my prior service uh, to uh, to uh, uh, for, for an IT position in southern Germany. So I jumped right on that, and uh, my first IT job uh, was nineteen. I think it was nineteen ninety-seven or ninety-eight for six seventy-five an hour as a systems network uh, analyst, engineer, architect. You name it, that was me. So that's that's kind of the, the long, uh, short version of a very long story of of uh, how I, I ended up in IT by just complete accident. Um, but I would have, like I said, I would have liked to have gotten uh, involved much earlier, but it just wasn't in the cards, I guess. You know, it's it's interesting to, to hear that because so many people have different backgrounds. And I say this on like every show, but how did you end up in your current role? What kind of propelled you into the CISA role? Well, you know, I, I had the advantage, you know, being in IT at the right time. I mean, this was the advent of, I mean, just things were just exploding, um, when I got to my, my first assignment in Southern Germany, we were, there was still 10 base five laying around vampire clips and uh, oscilloscopes and, and things. Um, those were in the boxes. We, we were a 10 base two network, you know, RG 58 kind of stuff. Um, and my boss, I, I went in, we were, we were upgrading from the thin net to the, to ethernet. And I went into the office, I asked my boss, I said, Hey boss, uh, how do I create a, uh, an, an ethernet cable? <laughs> I have no idea. He's like, go figure it out. You know, and this was before Google, you know. Um, so I had to actually read. And, you know, fortunately for me, the standard that I picked, I still remember today, orange stripe, orange, green stripe, blue, brown stripe, brown, uh, or something like that. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I made cables to my fingers bled. And I was just a go-getter. You know, I was I was putting in three comm cards. I was, you know, I was, like I said, I was the engineer, the analyst, the the, the network guy, you know, working with all of this different technology right right at the, 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 the start of it all. And being at the right place at the right time, you know, Germany is a very small place when you're in the military. And reputation precedes you. It really does. So it wasn't – I worked in a couple, couple of years in southern Germany, and, and the word had gotten out about this guy. He knew what he was doing, or at least they thought I knew what I was doing. And um, – I got promoted uh, to a larger organization, a uh, much, much larger organization. And then a couple of years later, I got a call from Iceland and uh, I moved from, from Germany to take over operations in Iceland. Uh, you know, it was just 
one thing after another, just being at the right place at the right time, having the military experience, knowing how to communicate with people, um, you know, having that, that uh, the ability to get people feeling really comfortable really quickly. I think that's, that's probably a real key from, from, uh, from a CISO's perspective. You know, you don't want to, you don't want to frighten people. You don't want to use fear, uncertainty, and doubt. You want to come into a conversation. You want to kind of slow down the pace, you know, talk to people and, and get them to feel comfortable about what you're talking about because security is complex. It really is. And the, the best thing that you can do is, is, you know, get to know the person first before you start bombarding them with all of the, the security protocols and all of the ridiculous things that we have to do today to keep the bad guys at bay. You know what I mean? I absolutely do. So let me ask you this. When you're building a team, what are some of the qualities you look for in, in your people? Oh, man. <laughs> that's that's a great question. I think, you know, when I think about my career over the last 20 years, uh, there was there was one particular job that that really kind of epitomized the the perfect team for me. I was, uh, I was the group security architect for a company called um, Elstom out of Paris. I was living in Paris at the time. This company was huge. It was 100,000 people in 70 countries. And uh, when they brought me in, they, ha they hadn't had a single security guy on staff. I was their, their very first security guy that they brought in. And, you know, at the end of it, you know, after five years, um, I had a team with people from 27 different countries on it. And, you know, when, when, you, when you have that kind of diversity and, and diversity of thought, um, you know, that many different people being raised, that many different ways of problem solving and that many different types of, you know, thought process, you can, you can pretty much achieve everything. So, you know, when I, when I look to hire people, it's, it's based on, you know, a long career of working with people from all across the globe. I love, I love it. When you told me you were in Israel, I absolutely love that. Um, you know, I, I, one of the first things that I always ask people is, well, where are you from or, or where have you been? You know, it, it kind of defines who I am in a way. I mean, I've, I've lived in seven countries and I've been to over 70. So, you know, I've, I've, I've got a story for practically every country, you know, of, of people that I meet. And it's always, it's always interesting to, you know, well, where are you from? Well, I'm from uh, Zurich. Oh yeah. You know, that restaurant uh, Luigi's on the corner that serves that black truffle pasta. And it's just like, oh wow, yeah, we know that. You know? <laughs> so it's that instant, instant communication, and you, you get to know people really easy that way. And but yeah, I, I look for personality. I look for for motivation. I look for you know all those kind of things. I I'd, I'd far sooner go with somebody who's, um, how would I put this? I, I I would hire someone who has less experience for a better attitude. You know what I mean? Absolutely. I mean, attitude is everything. It's yeah. chemistry of a team. It's how do they fit into the organization? You and I, I'm sure we've been part of people who are downers, right? Where, you know, when they show up for their shift, they show up to a meeting, all the energy in the room is sucked out. The wind is sucked out. No one has any desire to interact. And that creates a bad working environment. I, yeah. I absolutely agree with you there, Nick. That yeah, is, that I, is I spot would... on. I will hire somebody who has way less knowledge and train them, you know, get them up to speed uh, versus spending the time with, with someone like that. Like you said, that sucks the air out of the room. So um, I've just been really lucky of having, having been able to work with people from so many different places. I think that that's probably been one of, one of my secrets of success was just being, being able to work with people from so many different countries and, and, and them teaching 
I'm still in contact with people I worked with back in Iceland and Germany and J Japan and Switzerland and Italy. I mean, we, we're regularly in contact on LinkedIn and, and phone calls once or twice a year types of, types of things. So, um, you know, when you have a, um, a, what would, a think tank like that that you can access, you can solve a lot of problems. You know, if, if I have a, a, a major problem that I'm trying to solve, I'll, I'll call up my, my former chief engineer from Iceland. And I'll, and I'll ask, say, hey, Stearmere, did have you heard of this problem? Do you know how to solve this problem? And a lot of times he'll be like, oh, yeah, this, you know, I think having uh, having, you know, friends like that across the globe who can can help you solve problems is, is really huge. Well, it, it falls into the whole idea of cybersecurity isn't a one person thing. It's a whole person theme and it's not a national theme. It's a global theme right. and it requires global efforts and, and there's no way around it. Right. You can't ignore it. It's it's one of those where that's the only way you have to do it. You know, you talk about the people you hire and their and their kind of skills. What about the leadership skills that CISOs need in order to really be successful in leading their team? What are some of those? What are what, what's your secret sauce with that? For the team itself, as just, a CISO, I mean, as a CISO yeah. to lead, what what are some of the skills a CISO needs in order to successfully lead a team? In your opinion? Okay. Well. You know, there's there's different layers to that, but at the at the team level, I think it's simply just being a good human. You know, caring about people, you know, caring about their careers. Um, you know, I'm a I'm a stickler for for you know making sure you know we have our goals set, that we have our individual development plans set. You know, I I always include you know money for training for conferences. You know, treating people like professionals, giving them you know, the ability to do the things that they need to do when they need to do it. I'm a huge advocate of remote workforce and flexible work hours. I mean, I have some great stories. I know we probably don't have time, but I have some great stories where, you know, I've had people who had some real difficulties at the office. And, uh, you know, because of because of the, of the way that I think as far as remote workforce and flexible work hours, I was able to turn them around and make them into a successful employee, you know. You've, you've got to be open-minded. You have to remember that, you know, these are people you have to take care of your people is and lead by example is probably, and that's, I think the military taught me that, um, you know, they had a great deal to do with who I am today. Um, and I think those are, that's probably one of the most important things is leading by example and just really caring, you know, every, everything else can go away. Um, the phone calls and, and, and the technical problems at the end of the day, you know, you're only as strong as your team. And, you know, you've got to take care of your team if you want them to take care of you. The, the, the humanity aspect of a CISO's role is so important, especially in COVID, right? Where you talk about remote work. A lot of people are, I think, in security are almost micromanagers in that people come into an office. They, they, they're, they're, oh, yeah. they're in their cubicle. And when these people had to break away and now go work from home, and they're not only working from home because of they're working from home with their wives and their kids and who else and the dogs and, and the dogs and the cats and babies and neighbors and you name it. There's so many different things in 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 that whole uh, piece of the puzzle that you started to find out who's really effective and productive and who isn't. And it, it really kind of gave you a clear picture of of which people you can really rely on and which people you can't. 
But it also, the one thing it took away from us, and I think for me specifically, and that's why I'm in Israel, is the ability to sit with my DevOps and interact with them. The ability to have that conversation face-to-face, to read the body language, um, to understand someone when something is bothering them and be able to address it right away, which is a little bit harder to do sometimes in a Slack channel or a Zoom right. call. or you know, And, and it's uncomfortable because that you know, hand on the shoulder isn't there. Right. We, we have a lot of work to do as humans to make the environment that we're currently in work well. You're absolutely right. Um, you know, if you, if you've got pre-existing relationships with people, it is way easier than if you've got a brand new employee who starts remotely, you've got to really think about the implications behind that, the type of attention that they need to have, the, the, the different thought processes that you have to have, you know, they're not going to be able to, you're not going to be able to build that spirit of camaraderie through lunches or, or coffee uh, room or the, or the water cooler. You've got to find unique ways to, to create an environment where people can communicate virtually. And, you know, one of the things that I found that worked really well was the uh, our collaboration tools, you know, whether you're, you're a Microsoft Teams or a WebEx Teams guy or whatever it is, um, you know, having, having the ability to have an open room where people could just discuss things. I mean, we have a room called Water Cooler. You know, we, we also have other, you know, we have a cybersecurity room and, and different things like that. But, you know, the water cooler room is where we're posting our memes and our jokes and our funny things. So we still do that stuff. And, and I think that's important to, you know, continue to that, develop that relationship within the organization. But, yeah, it, it, we're definitely in a different world. And, and I think it's really important for people to, to put some time into thinking, how do I how do I continue to evolve my organization when I'm only going to see my employees maybe once a month, if that. Indeed. And once a month for the foreseeable future. I think we're in the midst of a second wave right now. The fall might be a third wave and the spring might be a fourth wave. I mean, it's it's unfathomable with what we're dealing with. A lot of people initially compared COVID to the Spanish flu and there might have been similar um, tendencies, but it's really not the same because of how evolved we are, mm-hmm. right? In 1918, you could lock people down in their homes and it was okay. Today, um, you can't lock us in our homes. We're, we're not the kind of people that want to, you know, we want to go out. We want to go, people want to go hiking. They want to go to restaurants, cafes, bars. Um, you know, if you're going through a family situation, I, I can't tell you how many, um, how I've tried to advise um um, a lot of uh, a lot of my peers is we, we need to kind of reach out to HR and set up psychological services for people who might be going through something at home, even right. before COVID happened. But now they're stuck at home with these people or people who can't see their kids because of COVID and so forth. There, there's a lot of there's a human toll beyond cyber that I think is oftentimes right. overlooked when we talked about when we talk about cyber. But the uh, mental capacity of our employees is as critical as our cyber program is mm-hmm. in terms of technology and, and, and planning and execution. If, if yep. they're not focused, we're, we're, we're done. Yeah. And, and, and we're, you know, talking, talking about um, being a CISO and, and the challenges, um, you know, and I always used to say in retrospect, if I could do things over, um, I'd get a, a law degree in data privacy and it would make me more marketable. Right. Um <laughs> I also think I'd get a degree in psychology so I could uh, understand people better. You know, is that that is it's such an important part of the job. You know, when you come into an organization, um, you know, you're under a microscope. 
And you've got to establish a lot of relationships with a lot of different people at a lot of different levels really quickly to be a successful CISO. So, you know, you're talking at the executive level, you're talking at the peer level, you're talking at your subordinate levels. And every level has a different story. And it's it's like a it's like a combination to a safe. And you have to figure out what the right combination is as you talk to the people to, to get them to open up, to get them to understand who you are. Um, and, and I think that, you know, having that, that EQ is such an important thing for a CISO. Um, I, th I think it's more important than, I mean, obviously it's important to have an IQ, but I think EQ in some cases could override IQ because the, the people problem is such a big piece of the pie. You know what I mean? Absolutely. I, I absolutely understand what you mean. And I, I will tell you this, that there's a, um, there's an, an, how would I want to phrase this properly? And I, I agree with you with the psychology degree. I disagree with you with the law degree. I think, you know, from, from, from my perspective, I think more and more organizations today hire a chief privacy officer to begin with. Um, and I think the whole mix of privacy and security is, is misleading. I like this division of privacy being one aspect of the business and security being another. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think a, a CISO's job is complex enough without privacy. Uh, nonetheless, add the whole privacy thing to your table is, um, it's a pain. You can spend months on end just trying to develop a, a effective privacy policy with your legal mm -hmm. counsel. Um, that is, you know, because it, privacy requires so much coordination within the entire enterprise mm -hmm. beyond security. And I have a saying: private, private, you know, being CCPA compliant or GDPR compliant doesn't mean you're secure. Right. It just means you're giving people a right to their data. The, the, it's, it's not really a security law, it's a privacy law. And somewhere in there, someone mixed them both up together. That's like putting pineapple on pizza. <laughs> well, I, I'm definitely <laughs> I, I agree with you there. Um, I, I would love not to see privacy in, in my realm, but in my last three roles, I've had it. Um, it you know, it, it's the role of CISO is like the role of CIO 20 years ago. You know, the CIO was catching everything. Because no one really understood what a CIO was. It was a new role. You know, it was developing. The CISO, I think, is the same thing. I mean, you know, it's just now, after so many years, that we're starting to get board presence, you know. Um, and I, I think our roles are not defined. You know, I've owned everything from badges to bullets to disaster recovery, business continuity, data privacy, records and information management. I mean, I've owned it all. If, if, if it had anything to do with, with not either access controls or, or some kind of data that needed to be secured somewhere, you know, I've, I've, had, to, I've had to own that. And it, it, it makes for a rather interesting um, organization, I can tell you. But I mean, I I agree with you. You know, privacy is not security. However, it, I, I like it. I think it's interesting. I, I like the I like the fact that society is maturing enough to where it considers, at least for mo for the most part, uh, personal information important. You know, there was a time when it wasn't. You know, there was no such thing as PII and PHI. You know, you had government classified data, which was top secret important. But no one cared about personal data. Now we're we're evolving and developing. Well, uh, you know, go ahead, finish your, no, your sentence. Our, our society to where we actually care about you know personal data. 
Uh, look how look how valuable it is to the co companies like Facebook and Google. I mean, there wouldn't be a Google if they didn't have our data. Uh, Facebook, I think, would be the same way. So it would be Twitter, Reddit, you name it. The LinkedIn. Um, <laughs> none of these companies would exist without data. They definitely wouldn't be multi-billion-dollar companies without data. It, right. it, it it is interesting. I I I agree with that. It's 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 the the the. The concept of privacy within security and the fact that people and I don't really think people care about their privacy. I think people care about the litigation if something happens to their data. Mm -hmm. I, I, we security people, we come from the mindset of I want to know what's going on with my data. We ask security questions. A normal if I walk downstairs to this street right now in Tel Aviv and I pulled up you know, 10 or 15 people and I asked them, and I may do this, I may do this once I'm done with quarantine because I'm still in quarantine in Israel, but once I finish my quarantine, I may go down the street and I may ask people, I'm going to grab my camera and I'm going to do this. And and I'm, I'm you know what, I'm going to do this. I'm going to, I'm going to ask them, how much do you care about your personal data? And, and how often when you sign up for something, do you really read the terms and conditions or do you understand your rights for privacy? And my guess is without being prejudiced, and I'll do this unedited just for the sake of a full disclosure. I'm guessing 10% would care. You know, I don't, I don't disagree with you. I think society has, I don't want to say, I guess I do have become complacent in some ways. We're very willing to give up our information for convenience. You know, we all know that we shouldn't store our credit cards on, on, on third party, you know, on amazon.com or wherever <laughs> we may be shopping, but we do it anyway. And we store a lot of stuff out there that we know we shouldn't. Um, but we like that convenience. So yeah, I, I, I can agree with you to a certain extent that, that the majority, a lot of people will probably give up their privacy for convenience. But there are some people who, you know, do care. And yeah, okay, we are, in some countries, we are very litigious. Or, uh, you know, people people love to have that ability to sue for, you know, whatever, you know, whatever it may be. But um, yeah, I, I guess I can see what you're saying. There, there probably is a good percentage that wouldn't really care. But I think there is an equal, not an equal, but I think there is also a percentage that probably does care as well. Um, but I, even I will admit it. I, I give up you know, my data for convenience as well. So and, and we all do. <laughs> we all do. You're, you're at an airport and you need Wi-Fi, and, and your phone's about to die and, and you need to charge it and you can't use it as a hotspot, hot but you really need to log in and do something. You're going to say, right. well, what's it going to hurt this one time? We've all been guilty of it. No one, you know, people always look at me and they go, James, you're a security guy. And when I flew to Israel, I did the ultimate security thing. I, uh, my face mask is um, the, the white uh, anonymous mask. Um, <laughs> kind of full, full, full thing. And I, I wore my data cartels shirt. Um, you know, and on the back it says, you know, hackers, uh, hacker be warned. And, and <laughs> people were looking at me all weird. Airport security got a kick out of it because, you know, I wore that mask as I'm going through security. And they're like, well, you need to take your mask off when you go through TSA. And I'm like, well, we're in a closed, tightly <laughs> place. Like, you know, there's no, there's no, no one's really, you know, keeping, you know, six feet. It was, it was very interesting to see how people reacted to the fact mm -hmm. that I was, I, I can tell you that people saw what I had on and no one cared. Right. Like, so you see a guy 
who's wearing a hacker mask with a hacker t-shirt on at an airport and you're not saying anything about it right like no one is saying oh maybe i should probably like turn off my computer now maybe i should like you know rip it. Right. No. Yeah. and you're like and 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 that's what makes me think that people don't really care about privacy i i personally think you know i have a personal opinion about gdpr it's it's europe's failed socialist policies and now they're trying to make up money for it and so they're they, they created uh -oh. a privacy law that's impossible to impose uh and that's that's really impossible to fight because it's so vague right and so that way they can find companies for whatever money they they amount and and just this week um i think uh what was it google lost their 50 million uh euro uh fine from france like they're really expected to win it right. i mean it was known that the french government is in economic hell and they passed this law in europe for the sole purpose of finding companies because ireland in the eu created a five percent ireland in the eu created a five percent uh tax rate for corporations and so a lot of u.s companies are based out of dublin google's right. main yeah. european headquarters is in dublin facebook twitter they're all there because it's low tax rate it's english speakers well they speak a form of english it's, you know it's irish english but nonetheless it's english um and it passports across all of europe yeah. and and these jobs don't go to france because all the french people go to ireland to work in ireland because the Ireland employment laws are friendlier to companies. While in France, I, I, I know I have CISO friends, as I'm sure you do, you can't fire an employee. Right, right. Like it's impossible to fire someone. You hire someone, it's literally worse than a Catholic wedding. No contract offense to any indefinite. Catholics. Yeah, it's an indefinite contract. Yeah. So, so, I mean, you know, th things that, you know, we talk about leadership, we talk about, the whole idea of building teams, different countries create different rules to where, you know, as you said early on, and we'll transition out of this here in just a second, you said very early on, I, I want to hire good human beings and I want to be a good human. And sometimes, you know, we don't always make the calls. Luckily, we live in the greatest country on earth, America, where we have the right to hire and, and, and dismiss employees uh, for any purpose, especially if they don't fit our team and they're not productive to our environment. Um, but in other countries, you know, I, I did projects in, in the Czech Republic, in France, in Portugal, in Spain, um, in Poland, in Germany. You can't fire an employee. Firing an employee requires four meetings. Four meetings. Congress, yeah. yeah, I mean, literally, it's like trying to pass a bill in Congress. It's, mm -hmm. it's, it's, and, and people are advocating for a bad employee. They're like, well, why don't we put him in a new position? And you're like the guy's late an hour every day to work and you want to give him a different job in the company, just fire him, cut your losses, move on. Yeah. They have, they have very strong employment laws in Europe. I mean, I've, I've had the benefit of working multiple countries in Europe and, and they're all the same. They're all very, very employee protective, you know, the contract indefinite in France, the unions, the canal in uh, France, the Vix uh, council in Germany um, in, in Austria as well. I mean, it is it is a workers union in the European Union if you get in one of those if you get to one of those positions where you can uh, go forever. So yeah, that's 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 it's different here in America. That's for sure. <laughs> well, I I can tell you I I, I when I, even I started my company in 2014 and we were looking for an EU base, we went to the UK. We were looking at the UK or Ireland 
because there was no way we were going to go to Germany, France, Czech, even though the people that we needed could have been in Germany and France. I would rather hire a German and move him to the UK and give him a 5,000 euro moving bonus than go open an office in Germany. And that just, you know, uh, and I don't want this podcast to be about um, European employment laws. Uh, I'll do a whole different podcast on that. And you can hear my view on, on how Europe just, f the reason that economy in Europe is garbage is because they fail at helping business succeed. Um, personal opinion. I'm a capitalist, though. So, I, you know, they look at me and they go, here comes the American guy who wants to eat hamburgers and fries and his <laughs> idea of food is McDonald's. And you're like, no, no, literally no American considers McDonald's foods. We consider it fast food. That's a whole different category of food. Let me explain to you how our categories of food work. <laughs> yeah, it's it, it's definitely interesting to, to hear the different opinions, well, the stereotypes of, of Americans in Europe. But, you know, ultimately... I lived in, in Paris for five years, and once you once you get to know the real Parisians, they all want to go to America, and they they would very much like to have some of the American lifestyle as well. So, um, I think there's there's hope for parts of Europe anyway. There's hope for all <laughs> of Europe. Say that. <laughs> but there's hope for all of Europe because I've been I've been to every single country in the EU. And I can tell you, and being in every single country in the EU, there's a lot of hope for Europe. It's not all over yet. But the, um, you know, unfortunately, like all things, politics rule. And, you know, especially in this time, I mean, we're recording this podcast at a time where people are trying to bring about change. And some of it is social change that's needed. Well, as our country needs a little bit of social change and adjustments, you know, those countries need economic change and adjustments. Right. And it's very hard to bring about change everyone knows that and so kind of transitioning let me ask you this as a ciso what part of security do you spend your most time on and why um one of one of my favorite sayings is if you don't have executive support you might as well just not show up for work so a lot of the time that i spend is is you know meeting with uh senior leaders throughout the organization to make sure that they're aligned um, my partners are the head of audit, the head of legal, the head of HR, the head of compliance, so chief risk officer, you know, the CIO, uh, you know, the, the senior leadership within the organization has to be on board. Uh, if they're not, then you're not going to be successful. They have to, they have to understand you. They have to feel that you're, you're bringing value to the organization. Um, and you don't want to talk about security at all. The, <laughs> My my modus operandi is I'll I'll meet with someone and we'll have lunch and we won't talk security whatsoever. I'll, I'll talk to them about what they're doing, how their operations are, you know what what they've got going on. What how can I make their life easier? But the first time I meet someone, I don't I don't talk about security at all. I just don't. Usually we talk about travel. You know we, <laughs> we, we end up talking. Oh yeah, I want to go to uh, Italy. Where, where would you suggest? You know, and I'll rattle off my favorite couple of places and then, you know, we'll, we'll work that out. But um, I avoid the first conversation about security because it's just, you, you've got to get reporter rolling before you can start, you know, I don't want to say bait and switch cause it's not, but you know, as again, it's the human element. It's the EQ. You know, you've, you've got to get people feeling comfortable with you. You've got to get them feeling like they can call you for have a question. I mean, one of the biggest things, you know, it, people have a lot of problem with, with communication with the board. You know, there's umpteen podcasts on any given week 
about how to communicate with the board, how to provide the board with metrics, how to provide this for the board. The best thing, the single best advice that I can give someone to communicate with the board is get to know them. Go out to lunch with them individually. Understand them as a human, as a person. Help them, educate them. You know, that, you know, the first time you walk into a boardroom and you've done that, you already own the room. You know, it is so hard to go into a room cold. I mean, it's it's one thing to give a cybersecurity speech. It's another thing to come into a room and try to convince twelve or thirteen people of a, to to view your opinion as as a subject matter expert, unless you've done your homework in advance. I mean, you know, when I'm when I'm at a conference, I'm I'm walking around the conference room, I'm shaking people's hands, I'm talking to them, I'm getting to know who they are. Oh, where are you? You know, who are you? What where are you? Who are you see so with? Or you know, you have to win over part of the room before you even start. And then when you get up and, and, you're, and you're doing your spiel, whether you're talking about, you know, whatever, the latest security technology or, or data privacy or your HR or whatever, people are going to listen to you. They're going to be more, more um, apt to, you know, clap or, or just be part of the conversation or even ask questions. You know, somebody you approach off, off the standard path will be much more liable to ask you a question than they would if you would have never talked to them prior. So it, it, again, for me, it's all about it's all about being human and all about building those relationships. Is if you don't have the relationship, you're not going to be successful. I'll tell you a quick story. I was uh, I was looking for another job. This is some time ago, and I was interviewing for a CISO role. And I was talking with the the the, the chief of staff of the of the company, and we were going over you know what expectations were. And and she asked me, she said, so so what? How do you come into an organization? You know, what do you do? And I, and I told her basically the same story. I won't repeat myself for, for brevity. Um, but, uh, you know, I said, I, I talked to senior executives and, and, and get them on board. And she says, well, as CISO in our company, you won't talk to any senior executives. <laughs> and I was like, well, this conversation's over. <laughs> There's nothing I can do for you. If, if I don't have access to the senior executives in your organization, then I can't help you. And that was the end of the conversation. That's how important it is to me. Yeah, it's, you know... I, I always talk to CISOs about talking to your executive leadership, talking with your, you know, your colleagues, your bosses, your, the board and so forth. You bring a very interesting approach to it, which is one, get to know them on a personal level, which in, in different organizations, that's viewed upon differently, right? Depending on where, this, where the CISO ranks within the organization uh, and the organizational chart, we see that be a little different every time. I don't disagree, but everyone, you know, if, if, if anyone has a single question about cybersecurity that they've always wanted to ask and were too afraid to, that's the time to do it. When you have the CISO at lunch, you can ask all those questions and you don't have to ask them in front of your peers and feel like an idiot. Yeah. You know, you're, you, you're absolutely right. Yeah. You can ask those questions that you've always wanted to ask. It's an opportunity to, to, to pick the brain of a, of a subject matter expert in a, in a field that is like magic to some people. So let me ask you this from a, from a security project perspective, what security project did you enjoy working on the most? Oh, that's a tough question. You know, there's, there's been so many. Um, you don't have to pick your ultimate favorite. Pick one that comes to your mind right now. Yeah, I, I think my the, the most fun I ever had. I was uh, I was the CIO of NATO Base Iceland, and um, we had this this thing called the unfunded request. 
So once a year, um, before the end of the budget season, uh, you put in a request to get extra money that some, somebody else didn't spend. And everybody had an equal chance to get it. You built a business case. It's called a, it's called a UFR, uh, unfunded request, UFR. Um, and you would submit it to the headquarters, and, and they would you know read through your request and see if if it was worthy of the the, the spare funds that was left in the budget for the year. Well, I, I did that when I was in Iceland, and I got what I wanted. And it was a, it was the first time I you know I put in UFRs for quite quite a few times. It was the first time I actually won something, <laughs> and. Uh, basically won something and we created, we built an entire new network infrastructure throughout the whole Island. Uh, and it was just an incredible project. And, you know, we all worked hard. I, I, I received a, a, a combination medal from, from the Navy for the hard work that we did. And we didn't bring in any contractors. We did it just with the staff that was on board and, and it was an incredible project. And, and it, it goes down in my memory as, as one of the all time favorite, but at the same time, probably one of the most disappointing as well, because six months later we closed the base, so <laughs> <laughs> so that work benefited Iceland. So we spent twenty million dollars, and then we we shut it all down. Well, we were paying Iceland four billion dollars a year to rent the space. So, and the, the strategic value of Iceland had been lost after the Cold War had ended in ninety nine ninety one ninety two. Um, so that. There was really, you know, we were just there just because. So it didn't make it through one of the the, the BRAC, one of the base closures. But yeah, that was probably probably the most fun project I ever I ever had. It was, it was just a really good time doing some really cool stuff and and getting everything to work the right way. So when you look at you know some of the challenges we experience as security practitioners, what challenges are we starting to overcome? What problems are we really solving now that you say? these problems are going to come back? Well, I think it starts at the top. I think we're solving the where do CISOs belong question, first of all. You know, we're getting we're getting into the boardrooms. We're getting into the executive realms. You know, people are starting to listen to us as a trusted advisor in the organization. I think I think that's something that's really evolved and matured over over the, the past couple of, uh, of years. Um, from a technical perspective, things change so much. I... I I don't even want to go there. I mean, I, I, I love the way that we, we constantly evolve our technology, but every other week there's a disruptor, or it seems like every other week there's a disrupting technology. If you so. believe every email that comes from every PR agency and every uh, email source, yes. I, I, I love those. Right. I love so, those. So that's kind of difficult. I would, I, would, I would, again, probably go toward the more human element of, of the evolution of the CISO as a job field, as you know, as an important part of the organization structure, uh, and being able to to help again the different partners within the organization. What challenges do you see us? We still need to work hard on because we're not solving them. Educating our users. We we are humans and we love to click. We are clickers. Yeah. We cannot stand not clicking our fingers on that mouse, man. It is, it, it's, an, I think it's uh, built, somehow built into our DNA or whatever. But uh, you know, we, we, we need to work harder to educate our employees because sometimes they are the first, last, and only line of defense against the worst bad guys out there. I mean, they really are. Yes, if they you are. look at the past 18 months, um, you know, most of the hacks have been one of two things. Either an employee got fished 
and they either gave up their credentials or they got uh, they clicked on some attachment and got malware on their machine and the bad guys got in that way, or the bad guys found some unpatched system that should have been patched many, many years ago. Um, so, you know, for me, you know, we have a really robust, well, I've always had in every organization, um, I've, I've believed in, in information security awareness training uh, and making sure that our users uh, understand that they are that, that last layer of protection. And not only that, but, you know, one of the tools that I've always liked to use is, is the connection to home. And what I mean by that is, you know, it's one thing you go to work for eight hours a day or however many hours you go and, you know, you're, you have the, the corporate responsibility for those eight hours to protect the corporate data. Well, when the same principle applies to your home data, it's very easy for it to become a 24-hour thing, not just an eight-hour thing. So whether you're protecting your, your 1040 return or your child's social security numbers or, you know, your banking information or whatever it may be, I always try to correlate, you know, work and home together so I get that bang for the buck, you know, it's always in the user's mind. And I think we could we could definitely use more uh, awareness, get people more up to speed on you know how the bad guys are doing, what they're doing, and you know what the users can do to do their part. So early on in the podcast, you spoke about reaching out to colleagues in Iceland or France or or you know Spain, Portugal, England, wherever for help in terms of a security community. And we do that really, really well. I think as a community, you know, it's, it's, it's easy for us to reach out to each other and, and ask each other and consult and really talk about it. Um, what are some of the best, what are some of your best practices in terms of security? What are like the three things that you say, these are the bedrock for my successful program? Oh, well, I mean, right away, uh, user awareness and patching. I mean, if, if we're not talking strategically, you know, we'll start at, start at the bottom. Let's let's make our house right. Our foundation of our house is is a good technical program. You've got your patching, you've got your user awareness, and things like that. And as you go up the stack, you know, eventually you have governance of the, as a roof over your house. And your pillars are probably like you know, privilege access management or identity access management. You know, the the access controls. And then throughout that house, you have your different layers. I'm, you know, defense in depth is kind of an old saying, but it's still, I think, a very valid saying. Some would disagree, but, you know, I believe in layering, you know, having security in layers. So, you know, I, I think I think those are probably all really valid pieces of the puzzle. Um, but if, if you were going to tell me I only had enough money to do one, one thing, it would probably be train my users. Two things would be train my users and patch my systems. Or maybe I'd flip flop depending upon and three, the and th and the third thing. Um, tough, really tough. Uh, I, I want to go strategic again. I want to I want to talk about um, you know getting buy in from all levels of the organization because it it's just so important. You know, you get the, the buy-in from your users. You get the buy-in from your your team. You get the buy-in from your peers and your 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 uh, uh, executive teams and things like that. I mean, I, I can't speak to that enough. How important it is if you don't have that, you're not going to last long in an organization. No, you're not. You you no. can't fool yourself if you're not talking to the CIO on a a daily or a couple times a week. And if you're not presenting to the board and if you're not, you know, meeting with the heads of HR and compliance and legal, something's, something's up. It's a different, either it's a, a really different organization. So, I, you know, there's always, 
not no two organizations are created the same, but it's either a really different organization or you've got some work to do, you know, and you know, you do because it, it is just so important. I, I, you know, it's, it's interesting to hear you say that because so often, you know, when I ask the question as, as to best practices, we talk a little bit about, you know, program development. We talk about um, um, different things that, that could have an impact on it and, and whatnot. But there's, there's, a, there's, a real, um, there's a real thing to talk about patch, patching your systems. You know, I do a daily practitioner brief, and I do it Monday through Thursday. And the, the main priority of it is let's try and organize everything that needs to be patched in an enterprise or small business system in one place and send it out to everyone because that's what I do every day. I mean, I begin my day by looking at what alerts are out there and then what systems are in, in any of my infrastructures and what needs to get patched. And, and the, it, I mean, that's how I start my day. So I resonate with your, with your number one or two as you flip-flop them between both. Because to me, it's the same thing as if you just do the basic blocking and tackling, right? You're able to do so much more thereafter. Right. And in the, in the the partnership part gets you the money to do those things, you know, and, and more money. Maybe you need more people, you know. Hey, if you've got buy-in, you're going to get more people. Um, maybe you need a new tool, you know. You're, if you have buy-in, you're going to be able to get that new tool budgeted, you know. It, it, it all it all holistically fits together in, in a tight little package that, you know, you've got to have each one of those pieces of the puzzle in order to create that that environment of success. Yeah, that's that's absolutely true. So now we're going to move to my um, favorite part of the podcast, I think. It's our CISO insight round. <laughs> so here's the deal. Um Here's what we're going to be doing, Nick. I'm going to be asking you six questions. It's kind mm -hmm. of like a like a like a like a fire round, right? Uh, um, uh, a lightning round. Let, let's call it a lightning round. All right. All right. Um, let's let's see how well you do. One buzzword you'd want to get rid of forever. I have a graveyard back in Atlanta, and it's got a bunch of buzzwords buried in it. Which uh, tombstone would you put? Which buzzword would you put on a tombstone? Cloud. Cloud. Okay. Why? I, I, that's the first cloud. I don't think we've heard cloud yet. Everything is cloud. Everything's in the cloud. <laughs> what is the cloud? It, it sounds like it's this massive, gigantic thing that, you know, it's, it's some mysterious force. It's not. I mean, cloud was around 20, 30, maybe 40, 50 years ago. It's nothing. It's not a new buzzword. It's, it's just a over regurgitated word that needs to be put away. <laughs> One technology that I think is going to change cybersecurity forever. Okay, you, you, you went digitized on me for a second. What was the question? So, one technology that will change the way we do cybersecurity. One technology that will change the way we do cybersecurity. Um, something that will enable us to control our users better. Human behavior analytics. Yeah. We okay. need to correct the HID. The human interface hey, device. So I, I will tell, you know, I, I had uh, Justin Berman, who's the head of security at Dropbox. And we had a very interesting conversation around the idea of educating people to use technology or building better technology that inter interacts better with people. Mm, and I can't mm -hmm. tell you how much hate mail we got. Oh, okay. Well, we'll stop there then. <laughs> no, that's great. It's controversial because people say, well, it's stupid. You really got to work on the humans. And we're like, why? Right? Like you've built cars 
and cars still have accidents. So now what are we doing? We're taking the human element away from cars by having computers drive cars. Because guess what? They have less accidents. Right. Yeah, All right. okay. Will, the last book on that one. <laughs> Question number three in our so insight round. The last book you read or your book you're reading right now. Oh. Um, I, I don't know if I can say that. Um, Why not? It's it's called the no asshole rule. <laughs> you can. You absolutely can. The no asshole rule works. <laughs> Love it. The last movie you saw. The Ritual. What's that about? Uh, it's about these guys that um, experience a loss with their friends, and they go to uh, – uh, hike in Sweden to kind of reflect on his death and everything. And in the end, it turns out to be a horror movie and, and uh, almost all of them are killed by this supernatural creature. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. If anyone thought to go see the movie, you now know the ending. <laughs> oh, it's an old movie. It's from a few years ago, so it's not in the theaters. What's your favorite music? Oh, that depends on what I'm doing. You know, uh, if I'm driving, I like I like Joe Satriani. If I'm sitting in the office, I like a, a mix of whatever's playing on on Spotify or what have you. So, um, you know, if I'm at dinner, you know, who knows? You know, whatever I could like whatever's playing at the restaurant. I don't I don't particularly have a certain genre that I stick to. Although I do like um, I do like uh, classical music played in churches in in uh, Gothic cathedrals in Germany. I think those are really you know, really cool to watch concerts like that over in Europe, and and that's something I would go out of my way for. I was I was in a I was in Italy in a small village, and we were there over a weekend. And I woke up on a Sunday morning, and I could hear the echoes of just the choir of the church. And as as a Jew, it intrigued me, and so I walked over the I walked over to the church, and I'm standing outside, and it was just unbelievable to hear it um it was it was intoxicating um I, I recorded some of it on my phone and it was my ringtone for like a good while um because it was just it was i mean i don't know if it was the acoustics of the place or mm -hmm. the ladies and the men singing but it was um every hair on my body stood i, I couldn't I was, understand the words i was in a uh i was uh I saw a Wagner concert in New Schwanstein in Germany. And that to this day is probably still the best concert, you know, I've ever been to just from the acoustic resonation of that castle. Yeah. And our final question for this round is the one thing you took away from the COVID-19 crisis. That remote workforce does work and it's efficient and you can still have a good time and keep your team together. So lots of things. That's awesome. Well, Nick, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. I really do appreciate it. Um, I know our, our fans do appreciate it. You guys can connect with Nick on LinkedIn. We'll have his um, 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 details below. Um, please don't spam him. For the life of all things that are good, he won't accept you. Just be nice, folks. Just be nice. Be a human. If you listen to this be, podcast... Be a good human, yeah. Yeah, be a good human. Um, as for us, this is... Um, our CISO Talk from the Road, we've got a lot more great episodes with a lot more great CISOs coming up um, over the next few weeks as I am traveling in 
Israel, and we'll be meeting with some local CISOs here, and very excited to bring you some international voices um, so that everyone can actually um, hear and listen. And you know, I've got some tours scheduled once I finish here. I'm going to go visit some CISOs and see some fusion centers and, and, and security operation centers, and it'll be very, very cool. Can't wait to bring you that content over the next few weeks. But folks, Nick Gilbert, who is just amazing, 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 amazing. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Subscribe, comment below, ask your questions, submit them, cyberhubpodcast.com for all the information you need on your favorite podcast listening platform or on our YouTube channel. We're just a few users away from being able to monetize our YouTube channel. So we're forever grateful for all your subscribers. Um, thank you so much. And until next week, folks, this is James Azar letting you all to please, please, please stay cyber safe.